everyone, my name is Terrence Simmons, and here I am interviewing Ms. Gloria Dover. Today we'll be, we'll be discussing historical moments in history that were portrayed in the media. We will also be talking about how the media covered it and how the event started and ended, how the public reacted to it, and Gloria's personal feelings towards it. First, can you explain to me how you were able to get your information before cell phones were created? Newspaper, by phone, telephone, by newspaper, by radio. Um, that was the main source of communication. And that's how you got, like, your news? Like, yes. if something, like, happened, like, if there were, say, like, school was canceled, you got it from, like, the radio? Or TV. Or TV? Yes, radio and or TV if school was canceled. What was a historical moment in your lifetime that caught the media's eye? Well, in 1992, the school was named after um, my mother, Benny Dover Jackson Middle School, which is located in New London, Connecticut. Um, that's what caught, that was one of the historical events by my mother, who was the first black teacher in the city of New London. What were people's reactions to it? Well, their reacts, they were excited. They were happy because the school was uh, named after my mother. And a lot of people knew her. She was very popular in the city of New London. She's been here since um, 1947. And um, she applied as a uh, teacher in the New London school system. And they denied her because she was a black woman, the first black woman in the city of New London who was who applied for a position as a teacher. And they told her, the superintendent of schools at that particular time told her that they had openings as housekeepers. My mother said she had too much education to be a housekeeper. She did not come here to apply for a position as a housekeeper or as a to clean the schools. She didn't have that, uh, she didn't have that background, so to speak. <laughs> what other forms of discrimination did your mother face while working as the first black teacher? Well, she faced some forms of uh, discrimination when she first arrived uh, in 1947 looking for positions in the teaching field. So she took her credentials elsewhere and still nobody hired her. She was living in the city of New London, like I said, since 1947. And um, she took her uh, credentials throughout the, the system, throughout the New London County system. Still nobody uh, hired her, so she came back to New London. Um, and she was faced with all sorts of discrimination. Um, other than that, once she got the position in 1954, uh, starting out as a substitute teacher. So they did finally, uh, <laughs> they finally hired her as a substitute teacher until uh, they hired her full-time as an elementary school teacher at Charles B. Jennings School in New London, Connecticut. How did the media and other newspapers catch the story to the event? 
Well, they heard it through the school system that she had applied, and she was the first black teacher in, in New London that applied for this particular position and got it. And it was a big, big thing back in the 50s that a black teacher had applied for the school. The first black teacher applied for the uh, position as an elementary school teacher at um, Charles P. Jennings School in City of New London. And um, she stayed there for almost 30 years, not at Jennings School, but she moved up, went back to school uh, at Eastern Connecticut State University, got her master's and went on and got her six-year certificate as well. Um, but she, our undergraduate school was Claflin University in Columbia, South Carolina. And um, once she got her um, six-year certificate, she applied as an assistant uh, principal or assistant teacher at Waller School in New London. So between Waller School in New London, she worked for them uh, a couple of years until the school closed down. Then she went to teach, she started uh, teaching at Winthrop School, uh, I would say the last 10 years before she retired. She retired in 1982 um, from Winthrop School in New London. Do you think that representation matters? Do you think it's important for little black children to see teachers that look like them? Oh yes, especially now in the city of New London now, back in those days, majority of the students were white and there was a small representation of black kids. Today's world is 66% of black and Hispanic and a small, so it, it flipped it flip-flopped. Now there's a small representation of white uh, children in the school system, uh, and it turned 66% black and Hispanic now. So, boy, what a flip-flop. <laughs> All right. So, do you believe that... Since your mother became, so since the school wasn't after your mother, how did that personally make you feel? Like, were you proud of your mother? Of course, I was always proud of my mother. <laughs> That's my mother. So yes, I'm extremely proud of my mother because she paved the way for other black educators to come in the school system. I'm extremely proud of her. And she also helped me with uh, joining clubs, groups, and organizations. So this two shall pass, but discrimination, as you well know, is alive and well today. Uh, what we're going through, it seems like history repeats itself over and over again, especially in this area because discrimination years ago um, to today was pretty much on low key. Because my mother is a product of the South and I was born here in the North. So that makes a difference all in itself. Usually parents that are Southern come up from the South to the North, they're looking for better opportunities. Here, the opportunities were for us, for children, black children that were already in the, in the North, the opportunities was a lot better because your parents either paved the way or your parents were educated, or the parents that weren't educated made sure their children were educated mm. in some kind of way. 
and make sure their children worked and earned a degree. You know, that's in my generation, but things change now. Okay. I can relate to that on a mm-hmm. personally, like personally, because my grandmother was from Alabama. She was from Montgomery, Alabama, mm-hmm. and she moved to Michigan. And she told me about all of the hardships that she had faced. She used to work in New York as a nanny, mm-hmm. and she got fired because, you know, the mother didn't like certain things that she was doing, but she was only doing that to, like, you know, take care of the children. Mm-hmm. And then she ended up living in Michigan with my grandfather and my, she had my, my mother and my grandmother tried like her best with my mom. Like she, my mother was actually like the first person in her family to go to college. Mm-hmm. My grandmother, like she wasn't educated at all. She didn't know anything about school and nothing like that. She only knew like what her mom told her. So Raising children. Yeah, raising children. children. Making sure they get educated. Yeah. So I can I can attest to that. I understand. I can attest to that. So I do understand. And then she was in Selma, Selma, Alabama, where Martin Luther King, and they walked. So she has a lot of history. She has a lot of she has a lot of history behind her. Yeah, my grandma's seen like a bunch of historical events. She mm-hmm. lived through the Detroit riots. Yes. And she told me about how when they were going on in her neighborhood, she would just stand outside on the porch and just watch the people just go out and just take a bunch of things from the stores. Mm-hmm. She couldn't do anything about it. Like all she could do was just be a bystander and just watch this atrocity happen. Well, I was part of some of those rides. My mother came from the south to the north when I went to college. I went from the, the north to the south. I wanted to get some exposure in the southern schools and find out what they were all about. So I went to a uh, southern school and I found out a whole lot about the KKK and the Ku Klux Klan and how I could get involved. But one of these days, I went to Shaw University in Raleigh, North Carolina. So the KKK came through the town of Raleigh on a march. And then all of a sudden, they started looking over to the school and see all these black kids um, just observing them. So what happened was one of the horses got upset and they started charging toward toward the school. We threw a bunch of rocks at them. (laughs) The police were all out there and it's a good thing, but we started throwing rocks because we were afraid that we might get hurt. Yeah. So the police stopped it all, though, because there wasn't that many KKKs, but there was enough to really start a riot. It could have been been very effective. But I was part of that, so that was not only my first bout with discrimination, but when I was smaller, when I was younger, I should say, um, I had a bout with going into a, a bathroom as we were going to see my grandparents in South Carolina. So I had a bout when I got out to go to the bathroom. And back then in those days, I was a bold little girl. I um, went inside the bathroom that said white only because I'd learned some (laughs) history courses about from my mother and from my parents and from reading. So I went inside the bathroom and it said white only. So I'm 
going in the white-only bathroom. doesn't matter if it was white or colored because I already knew what the colored-only bathroom was going to look like. So I went in the white-only bathroom, and it was clean, 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 nice and fresh. And the first thing they said, oh, a nigga went into the bathroom in uh, Virginia as we were heading south. And, oh, my mother had a fit. I went over there, and she said, I don't want anything to happen to you. So then she took me away, and then my mother had a conversation with the owner and said, there's no way that we should be getting, my daughter should be discriminated about going into this bathroom. So we, I continue, she's a nigga. She belongs in the colored-only bathroom. Well, the colored-only bathroom was nasty. It was filthy, and I wasn't going in there. My parents didn't teach me to go into a filthy bathroom. <laughs> so definitely I went into the white bathroom, did procure my business, and came on out, and oh my God, a big crowd of people around us. Really? The, mm-hmm. the second bout I had when I was visiting my grandparents in, in South Carolina, my brother and I uh, went to the movie theater. I was nine, I think, or 10, or either my brother was nine and I was 10, because we were about 15 months apart. Went to the bathroom, uh, went to the, um, went to the uh, movie and put a dime in the, you know, window when you pay mm-hmm. your money. Put a dime in the window. So the man said, oh, you sit downstairs. So he only saw my hand because the, the glass there was mm-hmm. dark. And he only saw my hand, so I put my hand through the window. So <laughs> then there was the, um, the man that was standing there collecting t- the ticket man that was standing there collecting tickets. So he went up front to tell. I knew he was going to tell something. So he went up to the man and he said, get these niggers out of here. They're supposed to be going upstairs, not downstairs. So I got angry. They had the police come. Everybody oh. came. My mother came. My father came. They were all there. Caused a big ruckus in the uh, <laughs> in the movie theater. And my mother said, we're not staying. You're not staying here to watch this movie. She said, my, my daughter has, my daughter and my son have the right to go upstairs or downstairs. That's their discretion, not yours. So it was a big scene. We had an attorney. An attorney? <laughs> yeah, because they wanted to file oh. a discrimination kind of, well, my mother wanted to file the discrimination suit. But um, we, she did that. But it was a big thing, mm-hmm. and she sued the uh, the movie theater because it really wasn't fair. So she did make out, <laughs> but she was right. Oh my goodness! Thank you so much, oh, Gloria well Dover. <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm sorry I couldn't have been better. We had this script planned a little better. No, it's no, it's perfectly fine. You gave me so much information. And, and I feel like hearing from a different point of view for someone who's lived this, it's very heart-wrenching and important to hear these to hear these types of stories. And I truly appreciate you being here and telling me these. Well, thank you. You've made a great newscaster. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Hello 
everyone, my name is Terrence Simmons and I am here interviewing Mr. Ray Washington. Today we'll be discussing historical moments in history that were portrayed on the media. Now, Mr. Washington, you're a police officer, correct? Yes, I am. How many years have you been working in the police force? Well, I've been in uh, law enforcement <clears throat> 37 years now. And I say law enforcement other than just the police force because I spent my first two years in law enforcement from 1983 to 1985 in the Wayne County Sheriff's Office. I then at that point in 1985, I went to the Detroit Police Department where I served 24 years in the Detroit Police Department. At that point, after 24 years, uh, one of my mentors in the Detroit Police Department, uh, Mr. Benny Napoleon, who was the chief at one time, we had really good friends and I kind of worked under him my 24 years in the police department. He became the Wayne County Sheriff. And he asked me at that point to retire from the Detroit Police Department and come help him and serve with him in the uh, Wayne County Sheriff's Office managing the courts and jails, Wayne County courts and jails. And so I agreed to do that. And I've been doing that since 2009 now, again, from 2009 to present. So altogether between that um, 11 years or so, 13 years, and then with the 24 years of Detroit Police Department, it's been over 37 years in law enforcement. So been doing this for a long time. So what was a historical moment that occurred while you were on duty and how did the news cover it? So uh, what, what comes to mind uh, when I was in the Detroit Police Department was uh, once we had what we called, uh, we, we have a, a state prison in the middle of Detroit in the, on the east side of Detroit. It was called the Ryan uh, facility, correctional facility. And uh, it's no longer that anymore, but it was that. And they had a prison escape there. We, it, it, it was labeled the Ryan Seven. Seven inmates escaped from the prison uh, and they were um, running about and trying to escape throughout the neighborhood. So you can imagine how intense and how uh, 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 unnerving that was for a lot of residents, mm. uh, as well as the law enforcement agencies that came from all over to try to capture these uh, seven prisoners who escaped had escaped. Now you have to know that when we talk about prisoners and state prisoners, these are people who have been convicted of very serious crimes and they're sentenced to a state prison. And so uh, you can imagine the uh, importance and, and, and the, uh, the, the, the uh, action that was taking place to capture or recapture these uh, inmates throughout the, uh, who were running throughout the city. And it took us about, um, about three days to actually gather all seven of them one had even died uh he killed himself he had overdosed he had overdosed on drugs uh he had got a hold of some drugs when he were out that was his main thing that he wanted to do ended up overdosing and he died but we ended up capture, capturing the uh seven and i was at that time a part of the um what we call a motorcycle unit uh oh. traffic enforcement unit and uh i worked in that unit and we had to uh distinct uh, 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 pleasure, I should say, of being able to escort the uh, convoy of vans that it took to, to separate these inmates and bring them back into custody from downtown uh, where they were originally taken to the, to the Detroit Police Headquarters. And so uh, it was very historic. It was uh, very uh, 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 newsworthy. It was really newsworthy because um, it was the biggest thing going over the last, over the 
the previous three days when they had escaped to recapturing them and getting them all back in custody and getting them back uh, into custody into the um, Ryan facility, Ryan Correctional Facility. So that was a major, major part of uh, that I can remember offhand. It was so many more, but that was one that was very, it, it was pretty, pretty newsworthy and gathered a lot of news attention for sure. Okay. What is the difference between obtaining news back then compared to now? Back when I was when I was working and when I back in the earlier days when I was working to compare compared to where it is now. Yes. Uh, the way news is covered, well, you know, um, it's 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 a little more uh, in your face now. It's a little more of uh, uh, got you kind of thing because uh, news now everyone has a cell phone camera and a video and and everything that happens out in the street now is captured on video cameras, cell phone cameras, or even cameras that are now more prevalent on businesses and things like that than they were back then. If back then it was more so uh, more real hard detective work, trying to figure out things that happened. But now a lot of things are captured on video. Yeah. And so it's a little different now, makes it a little easier now, but it's all, it also uh, can be challenging trying to even figure that out because oftentimes when you're capturing things on video cameras and cell phones, they're not capturing the whole thing. They're mm -hmm. not capturing maybe when it started, you're getting a kind of a snapshot in time. You're not really capturing how it ends. And so where that's a, uh, where it is a good piece to be able to catch things on video cameras and cell phone cameras, it doesn't always tell the absolute truth about what happened in that situation. So that is the difference. You know, you get it now instantly, but it doesn't really mm -hmm. tell the whole story. Back then, again, when you didn't have those kind of, uh, 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 that, that equipment to kind of uh, capture what you can capture now, you had to do a lot more work to bring it all into, uh, uh, to make it make sense in order to maybe uh, arrest someone or even convict someone if they are arrested for the crime that you think they may have committed. Do you personally feel like the news is more biased nowadays? Uh, you know, it depends. I mean, it possibly, I don't like that. I don't want to say that they are necessarily. I think the news, the news media wanted, you know, they, everybody wants, it's very competitive field and everyone wants to get the story. And so uh, oftentimes I think the uh, news media jumps the gun they kind of get a little biased uh, when it's when it comes to telling a story because they're in competition with other agencies, other news agencies, and they want to be the one with the story. Mm -hmm. They want viewers to tune into them, and so sometimes it, it seems like they tell a story that doesn't really uh, 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 capture the entire story, or they don't have the full facts. But we saw in a hurry to get the story out that it looks like uh, they're just saying things from someone who may know. They're saying things that aren't actually factual. And so it becomes biased in the point that in the position that they are biased with what they're saying because they want it to make sense, but it doesn't really, it's not really what it is. It's not necessarily the story that they should be telling if they took the time to get all of the facts before they started to tell the story. Mm -hmm. Do most of the crimes that occur end up on the media or the news? No, most of the crimes do not. 
there's murderers, there are Capital One crimes that we talk about, murder, murders and robberies and uh, domestic violence even situations, uh, kidnapping situations. Mm-hmm. Everything can't make the news, for sure. I mean, you know, the news has to decide what are they going to show on the news, what are they going to tell. I used to tell people all the time, not even does it not always make the news, you as a citizen doesn't even know about it. You know, uh, uh, there's yeah. situations and crimes that happen at a, at, a, at a store. Maybe the store got robbed and maybe someone got shot or maybe someone was assaulted at that store. And maybe it caused for them to, uh, maybe it was some bloodshed or something like that. Well, because store owners are, are in the business to make money, it's once that scene is kind of the police out of the way, it's cleaned up, it's, it's, it's back to normal, they selling whatever they selling in the store, and you as a citizen never even knew about it. So, uh, so, so not that only uh, uh, the news media doesn't, doesn't doesn't get a chance to tell talk about every crime because it's way too much crime uh, going on in, in major cities there. Mm-hmm. But um, you, you as a citizen, doesn't even know. So, no news. The news media does not capture everything. So, what are the crime rates in Detroit, Michigan? So I'm not sure exactly what the crime rate is in the Detroit Police Department or in the city, because in the sheriff's office, we're about custody now. We're, we're, mm-hmm. I, I'm working more in, more on the uh, uh, end of custody where uh, uh, people, once people are tried and convicted of where they're waiting to be tried in the crime that they're in our custody. I'm not out on the, on the front line as a, a first responder as I was in the Detroit Police Department where we knew tri- crime rates, where we had crime stat uh, conferences and meetings and things like that, uh, uh, where we knew those kind of numbers. But uh, crime is, crime is I don't want to say it's up, but it's steady. That's for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, we do not have a handle on crime. And I don't know that we ever have a full handle on crime as long as um, the police departments who have to respond to those crimes are understaffed, undermanned, underpaid. Uh, as long as those things are always, as long as those things are a factor, I don't know that we'll ever have crime exactly under control as we would like to. You can you can get the numbers down occasionally. Then there's a spike. Uh, something might happen. There may be a riot. There may be a police shooting where 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 citizens may not agree with it. Although they may not have all the facts, then they become. Uh, and they get in a situation where it's a violent kind of rioting situation, which spikes the crime levels back up. So in a major city like Detroit, it's up and down. It's, it try, we try to steady and level it off. off. But I don't, get, I don't know the exact numbers, but I, I, I don't want to say it's a crime rate. It's, the crime is down or the crime is up. And I can just say for sure and be safe to say it's steady. Mm. And it's it's, it's, it's we don't have a handle on it completely, and I don't know that we ever will. Wow. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ray, for, for participating in this podcast. I truly appreciate hearing from your point of view. This is my first ever podcast, and I'm grateful that you decided to be a part of it. Sure. Anytime. Whenever you need me, just call me. I'll be more than willing and happy to help. Thank you. You're quite welcome.